Thank you very much, and thank you for making it convenient that I can talk about the subject and then go up and give sheer. It happens to be the, uh, the crowd here is just fine because the format I picked is really one of a few pinpointed questions that I want to discuss, so feel free, from either side of the room, to jump in if you feel that these uh, difficult questions are not being answered sufficiently or you have some ideas. Um, I um, go every month to Shabbos with Rabbi Yankov, who's a man in the uh, machine over there, who is actually uh, very much involved in um, Holocaust education and um, the Ashkafis behind it. And I asked him, I spoke about the topic a few times, and I asked him if he were to uh, rattle off a few of the most important questions, what would they be? And I uh, have here a note of some of them. And uh, I think um, had we renamed, which would have been too late, uh, renamed the flyer in the last week and a half, we'd be uh, drawing parallels between Hanof and what happened and uh, the reactions of people to such a, a massacre on a smaller scale, but uh, never, never too small, one life is too much. And um, I'm going to weave the two together because it's really the same topic and I'd like to discuss some of the issues that people had in the past few weeks and I think it's the same issues people have with the Holocaust or with the pogrom or Tachvata to the Spanish Inquisition or uh, whatever, whatever piece of, um, of this long gullus we're dealing with. Um, let me put it again in the question-answer format. Uh, should we teach the Holocaust and the yeshivas and Beis Yaakovs? If so, should we make a whole year-long course of it? Why or why not? And let me combine it with the next one. If we're going to teach about the historic tragedies in Jewish history, why the Holocaust as opposed to, let's say, the Crusades or Tachvatat or any of the pogroms uh, and the like? Uh, the answer to the second question is that as we are closer to the Holocaust than any of these other historical uh, tragedies, it should be easier to identify with and to explain. We have, unfortunately, more literature, more pictures, more film, more eyewitness, more people still alive, Baruch Hashem, to talk about it, if not directly, but their children as survivors, Many of us here either children or grandchildren, maybe some of us great-grandchildren of survivors. And it's extremely real when you're actually able to talk to the people involved. Uh, should we be teaching it? So I don't know if this is the uh, politically correct thing to say about in such a context of a program, uh, but as we all probably realize, the Holocaust has no particular yichus in terms of tragedy, with the exception, it's a big exception, in terms of the sheer numbers and the new technology used for the atrocities. The fact that um, in Xeris Tachvatat or the Spanish Inquisition, the church would have used all of the above to kill more people that just didn't have it at their disposal um, doesn't make them inherently different. It's just the numbers are going to end up being very different. What I mean by that is the fact that if we're teaching this, we have to talk about what Gullus is, what Schar Vahenish is in the context. And again, when you talk about Schar Vahenish and the Holocaust, people start automatically thinking of what happened to all the Sadiqim and all the children, and they weren't what we consider a bar Anshim. And again, what makes it harder to accept is that we, uh, we're more familiar with the Holocaust, but it's really the length of the Gullus and uh, these many things that happened during the Gullus. Um, that's why I mentioned the uh, tie with Harnoff. Uh, so Harnoff hit all of us very, very, very hard. Uh, myself in particular, I used to live uh, around the corner. And the Rav is a friend of mine. 
uh, of that shul. And um, I was there when it was in a, in a different building. And um, the reactions, and I'll, I'll weave this together with the, one of the other questions here, when we explain the Holocaust for Kira purposes, how do we differentiate our stance versus a secular stance? So the secular stance quite often, although this reaction is not only with non-Orthodox Jews, unfortunately. Uh, I quoted one of these uh, during a drusha here in Shul recently, and half the crowd knew what I was talking about, the other half didn't, which either dates me or... Uh, I, uh, I mentioned that although there's nothing inherently necessarily untrue or wrong about every Jew at 22. Anybody know what that expression is? Anybody old enough to? No? You never heard every Jew at 22? Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you a Xerah Shava. The same person who said every Jew at 22 said never again. A 22 is a 22 caliber gun. Uh, and his reaction, he was orthodox. Um, yeah, we, we look at it as a little radical, but uh, the f- what? Yeah. So, so the reaction resonates with the democratic, you know, people raised in a free society where we could do what we want. We still have the right to bear arms. And that the uh, solution, the whole solution, or even a partial solution to these problems is uh, issuing every Jew with 22 and making sure everybody screams out never again. Uh, again, I, I don't say there are no situations where you wouldn't be allowed or encouraged to carry a gun. That's not the reaction to these tragedies. If, uh, if Hashem uh, deems it to happen, uh, we can have as many guns as we want, and the state of Israel is an example of that. They have, Baruch Hashem, uh, no shortage of guns there to defend themselves, and we have F-16s, and we have all the technology uh, America has to offer. And it, it, at the end of the day, it doesn't really do much. We have to have it because you can't. You have to stand there with something. But um, having lived in Eretz Israel and we all follow the news, the biggest tragedy is when you have all the technology and you can't use it because there's too much world pressure. So we keep fighting war after war in Gaza, and we keep putting more security guards at every door, and they're still having terrorist attacks. Leilena. So that means that every Jew at 22 and never again is simply not true. It doesn't, again, it doesn't mean that therefore there can't be situations where carrying a gun might be advisable, but that's not the answer. Anybody proposes to have the answer is assuming that these are tragedies that are happening, these are not doing enough ishtablis, therefore if we do more ishtablis, they won't happen anymore. That's, not, that's a secular reaction, that is not our reaction. Again, not that it's always wrong, but uh, to have that as the, uh, uh, the centerpiece, as the, as the icker focus of what our reaction to be as Jews, Jews have that reaction. From Jews don't have that reaction. From Jews understand that there is an element in any tragedy of Skar Vainish. Recent Harnof massacre, uh, the four people that were killed were from people, Tamil Chachamim. They were in the middle of davening, they were wearing tefillin. So the first question I got in those couple of weeks, which is the same question you can ask on the Holocaust, is what happened to Shemir Mitzvah, Le'edah Davarah, and Isaac Ba Mitzvah can't be harmed? What happened to that rule? These are real, these are real questions. It's, it's nothing wrong with posing the questions as long as you understand that you, we might not have all the answers. But the answers exist. And I'll just give you a small glimpse of Chaim Kanevsky in his Sefer Time of Dekron. I mentioned this in Shul a couple of weeks ago. Um, he asked a question by Sari Mena. Avmavinu went for the Akedah, and because of the Akedah, he lost his wife, and Sari Mena died. So here he is involved in a mitzvah, not a mitzvah, the biggest mitzvah that we're still reaping this chusim. And Sarah Yemena dies. 
So what happened to the Gemara's rule that when you're a shlucha mitzvah and you're involved in a mitzvah, when you're involved, when you're coming, when you're going, you don't get harmed. So how can that happen? That's what he asked in Parshish Chayisar. And he says a very interesting concept which he proves from various Gemaras. There's a Gemara in Shabbos that says that there were great tzaddikim who used to daven that halavai, when he leaves this world, he should leave doing a mitzvah. So how can you leave doing, how can you, how can you die doing a mitzvah? The answer is, is that there's a certain time frame where a person has is allotted years here on earth and he's not going to live more, he's not going to live less. And when the time comes to leave this world, the biggest choice you can have is being involved in a mitzvah when you leave. And we never look to die our Kiddush Hashem. It's, it's a very difficult Nisayan. But when it happens and the person's time was here and he leaves while doing that mitzvah, that's considered a big schus. He brings a raya from a Gemara, has to do, Hanukkah's coming, the great uh, community in Alexandria. Remember, thousands and thousands of people, they were there illegally because the Allah says you can't live in Mitzrayim. If you have to live there because you have no other place to live, it's not Yehar Vayar, the Rambam lived there, others lived there. Apparently the community was strong enough that they could have moved and they didn't because it's hard to leave. And the Gemara says that they, um, they deserve the punishment and the community was going to be destroyed. But the Medrash points out that they were destroyed because they had a decision to make around Hanukkah time. Should we light? It's a Medrash uh, Rabbah. Should we light? Should we not light? They were a little afraid because the emperor had a, uh, the governor had a son. The son was born at Tishabov. And the day the son was born, all the Jews were crying, which didn't look very good. It's hard to explain. And then, unfortunately, the kid died on Hanukkah. Now they're all going to light candles and celebrate. So they're all nervous. You know, politically, this could be understood the wrong way. So they're thinking back and forth, back and forth. They say, you know, we have a mitzvah Hanukkah. We have to light. We're going to light. They lit. They came and they, uh, they motioned to the emperor's wife, to the governor's wife. And she sent a letter to her husband who was fighting somewhere in Great Britain or something like that. Uh, instead of fighting over there, the barbarian says that word. Medjish Rabba, why don't you come and kill the Jews because they're rebelling? And she told him, he says, when, when the son was born, they, they propped up a list. And when he died, they're lighting candles. And he came and destroyed the entire community. Why was the community destroyed? So the Medjish says, the Gemara says, it's okay, they were destroyed because they lived in Mitzrayim and they violated the sister. What triggered the destruction? A mitzvah. How can that be? The answer is, is that if it's a schutz already, these were good people, they made a serious mistake. If there's a decree and they're going to go, that is a way in terms of their schutz to leave this world taking, taking, uh, taking the mitzvahs with them, so to speak. It happened during the Holocaust quite often. There were Heilige, Heilige Yidin who uh, went to the gas chambers. They were singing on Imamin and they were saying Shaman and they still died. And these people were davening uh, a couple of weeks ago with their children on the talus and they still got killed. Our reaction is we don't understand why Reuven is picked and not Shimon and why Rivka and not Leah. But we do know there's a Cheshman and we know that it's a schus, so we don't look for the schus because... We're supposed to be here doing mitzvahs alive. We don't look to get killed. But when a person is picked for such a schus, there is a special place in Shemayim for this that other people can't even, can't even see. And our approach to teaching these things is that we can't answer everything and it's too painful to look at a million children and say, well, they were picked as a schus. Uh, why would Hashem do that? So the answer is there are cheshbanis, some of it based on performance of Kali Yisrael or lack thereof. Some of it based on general Gullah's conditions. Some of it based on schusim of dying, al Kiddush Hashem. And it's a very complicated mix. 
But the education has to be along those lines, not that we didn't do enough established, that we had more guns, that we had a state of Israel, had we had F-16s, it wouldn't have happened. So unfortunately, we see over here, um, it's not working much better. And that is a difference of day and night between a secular approach and a firm approach. Firm approach is to increase bitachon and amuna, to try to understand what we can understand in Dark Hashem and then understand what we're not going to understand and have amuna anyway. And it's very basic. It transcends the Holocaust because in life, the hardest things to do with children is bring them up in a way where they have some chasachayim. You don't want to get them nervous about things that are coming. On the other hand, you also want to give them hints that life can be bumpy sometimes and when you hit the first roadblock, you can't fall apart. I spoke at the parents about this a lot, especially when there's a time of crisis, and they say, what do we tell the kids? How do we deal with this? We live in Baruch Hashem, very pampered. I'm not trying to change it. It's the sweetest gullahs we ever had. Wake up in the morning and we see a policeman, we actually say good morning instead of running the other way. And they're actually here to help us for the most part. There's latent anti-Semitism, but for the most part, we're in better shape than we ever were in the history of Klai all over here. And this is supposed to be Golis. So that's wonderful. The flip side is, is that whenever we hit any small issue, often we fall apart. I remember Ramesha's one most interesting line in the tshuva. Ramesha, as many years as he was here in America, he was still European. And he writes in one of the tshuvas, he talks about, he's talking about Tay-Sachs uh, testing for young adults, the testing before the chasana. So he said, you know, if you have the technology, the jury's out whether he pushed it or he just gave a hetter. Okay, it's different schmooze. But he said, if they want to do it, they should do it, but not too early. And he says in the tshuva, the reason you shouldn't do it too early is because in America, young adults have something called nervin. It's a chiddish. <laughs> I mean, she's talking about it like, like in Europe. But they, have, they get very nervous about the smallest things. So you start sending them for testing. They are a carrier, they're not a carrier. It's not enough to mean unless both are carriers and they don't get married. But Amisha understood in his unbelievable understanding of America, even though he's from Europe, that it's a new world due to the incredible peace and tranquility that we have over here, that the slightest thing can throw somebody off. And part of learning about Golis and the Holocaust and Tachvatat and the Inquisition and everything in between is that you have to be on some level prepared for things that life gives you because if you fall apart when things get a little bit difficult, there's not going to be anything left when things get very difficult. Lay a lane and nobody's looking for it, but these things happen in life. And the Holocaust is a very good framework to be able to study that and see how Halig Eden with a lot of B'tachon and Amunah survived. I can't imagine, in my youth, I did a lot of reading about the Holocaust. And um, I used to picture, I couldn't imagine lasting for 20 seconds in Auschwitz. About 20 seconds. Get an actress that just just to ride over there, just lining up. I, I couldn't, I can't say, how do people survive there for a month, a year? How? So the answer is, Baruch Hashem, the person is more, uh, more capable than he or she thinks they are until they're in the matzav. But it started long before that. It started from a very ingrained sense of Amunah Bitochen Yir Shemayim and the fact that life wasn't exactly a bowl of cherries before they got there. And they were sort of used to this. I'm not looking to turn back the clock. We enjoy everything we have over here. But there's a conditioning in... And, and the secular world is like this also. The, 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 the guy recognized that there are... For all the happiness and money and prosperity we have here in this country, there are more people on medicine and therapy than ever before. So how can that be? Isn't that, isn't that very strange? So the answer is, if every time there's an issue people start getting completely discombobulated, they're not going to be able to really deal with bigger issues. And I'd like to read to you a very interesting uh, description of this. 
when we get up to this in the shul, I think in about a month, we do Peliyah Shabbos afternoon, the last 10 minutes of the shir, just for Musr. So uh, we'll get here, but I want to read to you two paragraphs because uh, well, nobody says like the Peliyah. He has an alphabetical order of different entries on different hashkafic and halachic issues. This entry is called Yish. Yish means despair, means giving up hope. So obviously he's going to discuss over here when we should, when we shouldn't. Amr Chazal, Altesiyash Benaparanius, famous mission of this. So there are a number of angles of what this means. I mean, Altesiyash Benaparanius, don't give up when a person has Paranius. The other shot, which he's going to champion here, is if things are going well, a person should not have Yish that he's not going to hit a bump in the road. And the reason you shouldn't lose sight of that is because if you do, you're going to be thrown off when you get there. It's a, it's a very important thing. It's important for adults, but it's important for children. It's a very fine line. One of the questions here, Yaakov, you, uh, you uh, discussed or you wanted to discuss was uh, how much we should be giving over to children of what age. It's got to be very careful with this entire... You don't want to take a six-year-old and say, life is going to get tough. You better get used to it. It's got to be age-appropriate. And he's got to be able to deal with it. On the other hand, if you never, ever discuss it and you shield them from everything and then when they find out in real time that these things happen, they're, they're going to think something is wrong with them. I can't tell you how many times I hear that. Like, What's wrong with me? Did anybody ever go through this before? When I hear that, did everybody go this? I said, no, only the first 10,000 people I talked to about it already. Why do people think they're alone? The answer is they never, they have no exposure and, and Baruch Hashem, life is good. So he says, person should never forget that what he has today might not be here tomorrow and there could be trouble and you have to know how to deal with it. You have to prepare yourself now with your ingrained bitach You have to train yourself that whatever happens, you want to be because otherwise if it catches you by surprise, that itself can throw you off course. And you're not going to be able to deal with it because you weren't expecting it. A little preparation doesn't mean you should live life in a very morbid mood, like the world's coming to an end and, 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 and somebody's going to be some terrible tragedy tomorrow. But if you keep it at the back of your mind, you won't be caught off guard. Spells it out. He says, you shouldn't rebel against you shouldn't go out of your mind. If things go wrong. And whatever good you have, you thank him, but be prepared that it might not, that matzah might change and it might not be here tomorrow. And he quotes a passing in Kahelas, What does that mean? When things are good, enjoy it, celebrate, and thank Hashem. But while the times are good, keep in mind that things can change drastically and quickly. Prepare Everybody has their peckle, and no one is exempt from this. The key is mentally preparing yourself with these things again so you're not thrown off. I believe that's part of the success in the Holocaust. If you grew up in the school of hard knocks, as they say, and life was very difficult to begin with, when it gets a thousand times more difficult, somehow you're a little bit more prepared and you're not as shocked. Certainly the Eastern European Jews were not so shocked when the Gaim came to get them. 
They didn't think they liked him in the first place. Esav Sani is Yaakov, Halachi Esav Sani is Yaakov. It hasn't changed. And the Peleyates advises people to understand that both on a national scene and individual issues, a person has to know this and be prepared. He ends off on a positive note. Chazal quotes from the Malchus Beis David. Even if it looks like it's all over and there's a sword by your neck, don't give up. The national gula. But even a personal gula. How many cases do we know from the Holocaust? There is nobody who survived the Holocaust who didn't have a thousand times a day when they thought it was the end. And if you hold on to on the one hand, you can be prepared for the worst case scenario and be ready with your Shema Yisrael and your Ani Mamin. On the other hand, know that as close as you are, Hashem at will can step in at any time. This is true in the Holocaust, and I think to get across to our children and to ourselves, that in the small issues in life, much smaller than the Holocaust, no matter what you're going through, Yeshua Hashem Keherafayim. And um, I think these are the most important lessons we can get across. I'd like to mention two other points. Can we use the Holocaust for Kirov? The answer is yes and no. Uh, there are many people who went to the Holocaust and went off. There are some people who went into the Holocaust, fry, and became from. They realized if I'm going to die as a Jew, I might as well see something about it. Some very inspiring stories. Most people went in from, went out from. Again, like the Pelia has just said, it's all about the conditioning in life. It's all a question of what, what your basis is, what you expect out of life, where the baseline Bitochan and Amuna is. So for Kirov, well, go over to a secular college kid, start with the Holocaust. I don't know. Most of them, I think, would say, well, where was God in the Holocaust? And doesn't that prove there's no God? So in that aspect, if you want to start answering questions, I don't know if it's the most valuable Kirov tool, I think. And Yaakov, you've probably seen this in Europe in your trips. Um, I think the cure of tool here is when you actually learn about it, see it in pictures, see it in a film, or actually see it in Europe at a concentration camp, it's so shocking, it's so jarring that you often have to stop to realize why are we the only people on earth that went through this to such a degree? And we're obviously the chosen people. They might say sarcastically the being chosen for disaster, chosen for punishment, but they can't ignore the chosen. And once you have the chosen, you can already start discussing, well, why do you think we're chosen? And we can't be that bad, so why would God be doing this? And you'll enter into a discussion and the fact that we're special and get them thinking. And in that regard, I believe it is a very powerful of tool. It has to be done in the hands of a professional who understands what to say about the Holocaust and what to say about Kirov. And in that way, it could be a very uh, powerful tool. <clears throat> I remember the, uh, I, uh, I look at, uh, I, I used to try to look at all the books that come into my house to uh, make sure they're censored and they're proper reading. So I remember years ago, my daughter brought a book in. Women here should be familiar with it. She got it as a, to write a book report in, in basic, I think she's in ninth grade or tenth grade. Um, to Vanquish the Dragon. Um, pretty heavy reading for a ninth grader from what I remember. I read just a few pages to see what it was about. A few pages I read left a Roshim on me. Did anybody here, anybody here remember the book? There was one, it goes, it's a very large book, and it goes in the beginning of the war, throughout the, the entire uh, four or five year period. The very beginning, I remember when they came, I believe when they came into Warsaw, 
the Nazis, Rachman Zichrom, started you know, going all around and smashing things and taking things and arresting people and going to the shul. They took out all the Sefer Torah and they started uh, sacking the shul. And they had taken all the Sefer Torah and put them on the ground. They took all the silver off and started making a pile as they did wherever they went. And they uh, called the first Jew who had the misfortune of walking by. They called him over and they got a good time with him. Happened to be walking by was a, a very pushed year by the name of Itzik the Barber. Itzik the Barber was a barber, hence the name, and he was not very from. And uh, he walked by and they called him over and they said, uh, I want you to undress the uh, Sefer Torah now. And they said, we're taunting him. You see, the, you know, your, your, your scroll can't help you and I want you to undress it. And he took off the mantle. He didn't know what they wanted at first. And then the Nazi said, I want you to step on it and spit at it. Now, here's a Jew who's not orthodox, but he knows what a Sefer Torah is. And he tells over the story what he must have been thinking at the time is that I might be Itzik the barber, I might not be such a big shul goer, but uh, twice a year I go, and maybe I'm Simchas Torah, and maybe I'll be Zech one time to dance with the Sefer Torah, and maybe this is the time. And he didn't have a half a minute to do with the Nazis. The Nazis saw he started daydreaming because he was thinking about what it was at hand, and he pulled out his gun, and he said, uh, you better get going or else. And he picked up the Sefer Torah, did not take off the, uh, the mantle, and put it, put it back down and uh, so they're not going to step on it or spit in it and he started uh, holding it tight and dancing with it and people were looking from their windows still because before they rounded everybody up and they realized that uh, it's a matter of uh, another minute or two and the Nazi flew into a rage and he screamed at him he says you don't hear me you dirty Jew he says you better do what I say and he was at that point oblivious and he's holding his Sefer Torah and he said he was happy to be able to have this chus and he was shot with the Sefer Torah on the spot because a year didn't keep many mitzvahs, never went to shul, except for twice a year, twice a year Jew. But the Pintaliyad over there, there was no Havamina that he was going to disgrace the same material. And that Itzik the Barber was one of many stories to show how the little Jews in the Holocaust woke up and realized that uh, if this is what we are and this is what they are, I'd rather be on our side. And these are powerful stories, both for the Kirov aspect and for the, uh, for the next generation as well. Okay, is there any uh, question or two? We have a few minutes um, that I didn't address from um, anybody here. I think I gave you enough to think about for now. I will uh, turn the podium over to a, uh, one of the Choshev experts of our time. I'm going to go upstairs and give Shir. And um, maybe I'll uh, get from David. I'll get to see the video some other time. So uh, thank you for listening. And I think it's um, an important thing to discuss with your children. Again, it has to be age appropriate. You don't want to scare them too much. But it's not only a question about the Holocaust. It's a question of how we handle bumps in life and the basic amun and bitachin and how people deal with these situations. Okay.